You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And Father, we look to you this morning that you may speak to our hearts. Father, the last thing we need is to hear the voice of a man or to hear the opinions of a, a man or the opinions of one another. Father, we look to you to hear your voice. We pray, Father, that your truth would come to our hearts. And we look to you with great anticipation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. So far in our studies, we have discovered that all of humanity is plunged into darkness, uh, such darkness that apart from Christ Jesus, uh, we are left not only spiritually bankrupt, Uh, but spiritually dead. And uh, we have discovered that perfect righteousness is required to stand in God's presence and to enter into his kingdom. And that has not been a a wonderful discovery, has it? Uh, Because the righteousness that is required to stand in God's presence and to enter into his kingdom is a righteousness that we don't have. It's a righteousness that in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we could never acquire. And that is what we call the bad news of the gospel. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God has provided this righteousness in the work and the merit and the achievement of Christ Jesus. And uh, furthermore, Paul is telling us that this righteousness is available only one way. And that is through faith and Christ. And that's the great news of Romans 3, 21 to 26, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, which we uh, termed uh, the greatest paragraph perhaps that's ever been written. Huh. You know, after all that bad news, you come to Romans 3, 21 and you read those words, but now. Uh, how wonderful those words are. But now. Now, last week we moved on to verse 27 through the end of chapter 3. And there we, you know, there we begin to see that Paul has, has, just, has just developed what we would call the greatest of paragraphs. In 321 to 26, and then starting with 327, he begins to make an application of what he has, has already said. And his first application concerns boasting in verse 27 he asks, what becomes of our boasting? Uh, and he answers, it is excluded. 
In fact, you'll recall last week, uh, I, I shared with you that in the original, it actually means it is shut out. Uh, what becomes of our boasting? Well, it is, it is shut out. And the, the logic is really simple. I mean, if we have no merit or achievement uh, of our own that we can lay claim to and say that, okay, here, here God, um, you know, here's this. I mean, I was, uh, for instance, born to this set of parents or, um, you know, I've taught Sunday school for 60 years or I have been a member of this certain church or I have tithed all that uh, that I've received or I have, I have, I have, I have done, I have done, I have done. Um, if there is, if there is uh, no merit or achievement like that, well, then that just that just causes the whole thing to come tumbling down. Uh, uh, these things may be all worthy in and of themselves, but quite frankly, they're unable to produce the merit or the righteousness that's required uh, to get into God's heaven. Uh, they're, un they're unable to produce it and they never will be able to produce it. No, Paul's been telling us that the only way we can be justified is to be clothed in the merit and the achievements of another person. And that person is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is his achievements. It is his merit that we have to look to. It is his merit. It is his achievement that we so desperately need. Uh, now, uh, that leaves us with nothing to boast about. But yet, uh, as I said last week, boasting is kind of our first language. You know, you know how when you learn a second language, uh, uh, you, you, it is just that, isn't it? It is a second language. Uh, there is an earlier language that came first. And... Uh, Boasting actually is our first language. To use uh, John Stott's words, it's the language of our fallen self-centeredness. And last week I spent a lot of time uh, developing that, maybe too much time developing that. I don't know. I, one of the things I wrestle with as I write sermons is how pointed to be, how pointed, how pointed should we make a sermon? Believe it or not, I foul a lot of the points off of these things uh, because sometimes I think they're too pointed and if I began to add, and I even asked a few of you, you know, is that, is that too pointed? And uh, I'm not trying to withdraw from teaching the truth here by any means. Uh, but it's, it's really a subjective thing. You know, if I asked four of you, okay, was that too pointed? Three of you might say no, another might say yes, or we might have two yeses and two no. I don't know. But I spent a lot of time on it, and it may have foreshadowed my main point. I don't know. My main point last week was not to point out how boastful we can be, uh, but to point out that justification by faith produces an environment in which true loving community can take place. And how does it do that? It does that because it silences the boasting. I could put it another way, which comes even closer to the root of it, that justification by faith creates an environment where true community can take place because it extinguishes pride. What do we have to boast about? Paul says nothing. Okay. That's the first step in trying to learn our second language which has no boasting in it except for boasting in Christ Jesus. We really have to learn how to do that, don't we? That's a new language we have to pick up and learn. Language of boasting in Christ Jesus instead of boasting in our own achievements. So um, 
you know, whenever we have problems with one another, whether it be a whether it be family dysfunction or church dysfunction or social dysfunction, pride is always in there, isn't it? It's always it's always in there. But justification by faith extinguishes pride. And as it extinguishes pride to that measure, it improves the environment in which we uh, can really, truly have loving community. That was uh, that was what I was trying to say last week. And now some of you might say, well, Ricky just said it in two minutes. You detained us for 35 last week saying it. Well, to that I say, well, I'm going to I'm going to keep you probably for another half hour saying something else that I'll summarize in two minutes next week for you. OK, uh, just to draw a little laugh out of you. Let's continue in our study uh, uh, really to the next point. I really just want to try to go up one more rung on the ladder, if you will. And in order to go up, I think this week we're going to have to step back. Uh, if you would look back to me to Romans 3 and verse 30. There you'll see Paul raises an objection. And I point out this. I haven't said much about this so far because what I've decided to do is I want you to see this. I want you to see this as a style of Paul's. I wanted you to see it for a little while before I point it out to you because some of you probably already noticed that Paul's very fond of asking questions and then answering them. If you notice that about Paul's writings, he'll ask a question and he'll answer it. He'll ask a question and he'll answer it. And even if you listen, I, I do that a lot in sermons. Um, the, the, uh, the technical term for this is diatribe. I mean, wh- wh- where's Paul getting these questions? Where do these questions come from? Well, uh, perhaps Paul is recalling past objections that, that have been raised as he has shared the gospel. Uh, perhaps Paul is expressing objections that he has had himself as he has wrestled with the gospel. Uh, perhaps what Paul is doing here is uh, sparring with an imaginative opponent, if you will, as uh, some commentators uh, speculate. Uh, all of these scenarios have been suggested. I, when it comes to choosing which one of these is going on here, I, I don't think we should choose. I think we probably would be very well um, to say that all three are probably going on here. Uh, Paul knows full well that when his fellow Jews hear this message, that justification is through not through works, but through faith, he knows what they're going to say to this. They're going to, they're going to say, well, what about the law? I mean, naturally, that's what they're going to say. I mean, we could, if we could, let's try to imagine them. You can almost imagine Paul in a room like this saying, all right, everybody, you know, uh, to get right with God is not a matter of performance. It's a matter of faith. And we can almost imagine someone standing up in the back and saying, hey, Paul, what, what about Moses? If you're saying that this is all about faith, well, what about Moses? I mean, what about the ceremonies? What about the sacrifices? What about the commandments? And Paul anticipates these objections. Look at verse 30. What's Paul say? He says, what about the law? He's anticipating the guy in the, all the way in the back who's going to stand up and say, hey, what, what about the law? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? Paul answers very, with very forceful words, by no means. You see that little phrase there, by no means? This is a very difficult little phrase, meganoita. It's a very difficult phrase to bring into English because it's a real forceful kind of thing. Some will say, God forbid. Some will say, perish the thought. Some will say, by no means. Uh, some will say, uh, uh, God forbid, uh, 
It's a very difficult phrase. Let me just say this. It's very forceful. Paul is saying very forcefully, by no means. On the contrary, verse 31, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. But we can, ima- we can further imagine his opponent saying, oh, Paul, Paul, your great learning has made you mad. Paul, I mean, our father Abraham has shown us the way. I mean, Paul, do, do we need to sit down and have you forgotten Isaiah? Do we need to sit? Paul, sit down here. Sit down and turn your Bible to Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 2. Listen to what Isaiah says, Paul. Isaiah says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were home and to the quarry from which you were dug. Paul, listen. Listen to verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him but that I might bless him and multiply him. Paul, look, come, come in and look at this. And Paul, you seem to forget about Genesis 22. Paul, you, do you remember this story? God called to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah. And there I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Do you remember that, Paul? And, and Paul, what did Abraham do? Paul, turn your, turn your Bible. Um, turn your Bible to Genesis 22. Verse 1, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And Paul Do you remember verse three? Look at verse three. Abraham, he rose up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Paul, he he didn't hesitate. He took his son. He went to the Mount Moriah. Now, Paul, look at verse nine, verses nine to twelve. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him on top of the altar. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the, the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord stopped him, stopped him at the very last minute, called out to him, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And listen to this, Paul. He said, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So you see, you see, Paul, Abraham was faithful. And that is why he was justified, because he was faithful. Now, Paul is anticipating all of this, isn't he? Why is he anticipating all of this? Undoubtedly, this is the this is what Paul had embraced for much of his life. Now, um, if we take um, and go back to Romans and we turn from chapter three and we turn the page to chapter four, notice what Paul asks. What does he ask there? What shall we say was gained by Abraham? Do you see what Paul's up to? Why is Abraham coming into this? Well, he's anticipating this objection for sure. But more than more so, we're going to see more so. Verse two, if Abraham was justified by works, as Paul's opponents are saying, well, he has something to boast about. You see, now we're back on that subject again, aren't we? 
You remember last week I told you there's some connectivity between, you know, that Paul's going to introduce some themes in chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, that he's going to expand on in chapter 4. Well, here we go with the first one. So uh, if Abraham is justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Now, uh, again, notice what Paul is saying. Um, uh, he's saying to his uh, opponents um, that really, I mean, if there was anyone who could stand before God and say, hey, God, you know, uh, you remember this thing that I did, um, this thing out on Mount Moriah, you know, I had the knife in my hand and Lord, if you wouldn't have miraculously stopped me, I wasn't even going to withhold my son from you. I was going to do what you said. I, I really do love you more than I love even my son. And uh, we would say to this that disobedience is admirable, isn't it? I mean, it, I think of my own miserable uh, obedience, which is quite miserable in, in, in comparison. And maybe I'm not alone um, this morning. Um, well, can Abraham boast? Paul, what does he say in verse 2? Not before God. And... Um, I think we can imagine Paul's fellow kinsman hearing this and the guy in the back, you know, that keeps standing up. Well, he just jumped up and said, what? You're saying that Abraham has nothing to boast about? When he was about to slaughter his only son? Paul, have you forgotten how long he waited for this son? He is the promised one. Abraham waited for more than two decades for this son. Well, it's a remarkable testimony of faith. It's a remarkable act of obedience. But what Paul is saying to us is this. Even Abraham's willingness to offer up his son Isaac. As admirable as it is. As amazing as it is. Is insufficient. To justify us. Before God. And let me stop on this for a moment and comment. I mean, it's, I think it's easy for us to see that our common, ordinary, garden variety uh, acts of obedience are insufficient. I think that's easy enough for us to see. And I think that if we reason to ourselves, you know, in our fallenness, that, okay, one little thing isn't going to do it. But if we can pile these things up, if we can make a big enough heap, if we can make a big enough pile, at the end of this life, if we can, if we can have them all piled up here and, and we won't point to any individual acts of obedience, but we'll point to the pile and say, Lord, look at the, look at the, look at the pile we have here. Uh, then uh, maybe we can get by if we, if we have a big enough stack. But this is Abraham's obedience is far from common, ordinary garden variety obedience here, isn't it? There's a shock factor here is what I'm trying to point out. 
It's a shock factor that I think we've become numb to because we've been here in justification by faith for a long time. And I think this is lost to us, the actual shock factor of what's being said here. You know, Abraham has his act on Mount Moriah. We have our pile stacked up. And what is the verdict? Well, the verdict is it's insufficient grounds for boasting before God. If Abraham can't boast, oh my goodness. What does that say about our grounds for boasting? What do we say to this common line of thinking? A common line of thinking, if we might move our dialogue into contemporary terms, a common line of thinking might be, hey, Paul, you know, Abraham, okay, listen, Abraham wasn't a perfect guy. Okay, there is that thing, you know, about, you know, asking his wife to lie about being his sister. And, you know, there's that stuff, you know. He slipped up. But surely this thing on Genesis, this Genesis 22 thing, this thing on Mount Moriah, I mean, that outweighs the bad. I mean, it's like, okay, we got some, we got some bad here, but the good outweighs the bad, you know. That's a common line of thinking today, isn't it? Okay, I've done some bad stuff, but I've got my pile over here and my good stuff. And... What's Paul have to say about that? No, contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't work that way. Paul says, Romans 3.23, all sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from the pile heaped up, apart from the pile. Our good works, no matter how good they may be, uh, they cannot justify us in God's court, nor can they provide the righteousness required to stand in God's presence. No, Paul says to his opponents, verse three, Paul says to them in his dialogue, what do the scriptures say? You see that in verse three? What does the scriptures say? You see that? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there are several things we need to look at here. Uh, the first is, Paul is quoting from Genesis 15, 6. Huh. That's, that's why I chose Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6 this morning to start our service with. Uh, he is quoting from Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it is often pointed out that this is the first time in the Bible. Genesis 15 and verse 6 is the first time in the Bible where the word belief appears. It's the first time the Hebrew word man appears for the first time in this verse. And what is meant here? Well, what the meaning here is that Paul has complete trust in the promises of God. What's God promising? I promise you a son. Uh, I promise you descendants. They'll be as numerous as the stars. I promise you the land of Canaan. I promise that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham embraces those promises. He trusts God in those promises. Second observation here is that is one that I've said many times, but I, by way of reminder, I say it again. Paul is showing us that the way of salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Can you see that? It's the same in the Old as it is in the New. I mean, when Paul preaches the gospel, he uses Abraham as the prime example, doesn't he? Abraham and the Old Testament saints are saved the same way as all the New Testament saints, including us. It's by faith. A third, and we need to spend some time on this one, a third is that we see in the words, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as a righteousness. We see that there is a connection being made between believing 
God's promises, and acquiring righteousness. Between uh, believing God's promises and acquiring, uh, gaining acquisition of righteousness. Paul tells us that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteous. Now, I mean, it, it, it should be pointed out that Romans 4.3 could be read to mean this and you'll need to listen carefully. Faith, it could, be mean, it could mean that Abraham's faith is considered as the equivalent of righteousness, that God sees Abraham's faith as itself a righteous act, well-pleasing to him. I'll read that to you again. It could, be, it could be read to mean that Abraham's faith is considered as the equivalent of righteousness, that God sees Abraham's faith as itself a righteous act, well-pleasing to him. Now, some of, some of you have been up all night, and you're completely off the hook here. Um, and some of you have worked really, really hard, and you're very tired this morning, and you're completely off the hook here, but other of us are fresh. Is there something wrong with this statement? I'll read it again. Faith is considered, Abraham's faith is considered as the equivalent of righteousness. That God sees Abraham's faith as itself a righteous act, well-pleasing to him. Is that okay? I'm not trying to pull brain teasers on anyone here. What I am trying to do is show you how slippery this is. This is so very slippery. If this reading is correct, then Abraham's righteousness is the result of his personal faithfulness. Is his righteousness the result of his personal faithfulness? I hope you're saying no. But the problem that we have is that we constantly default to saying yes. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why is the theology that we constantly default to. And this logic, this is the logic that we constantly read into the verse, and I hear it as I listen to people talk, especially when you hear the word deserve come out of our mouths. We deserve this. We deserve that. Based on what? Your merits and achievements? Well, Paul says we don't have any of that. Uh-oh. You see, that wipes that out, doesn't it? Uh, well, actually, we, we do deserve things. They're just not nice things. So let's hush up about this deserving stuff. Every breath we take is a breath of grace, which produces thanksgiving. You see, the word deserve produces grumbling and complaining. The word grace produces thanksgiving. See, it's another language we've got to learn, isn't it? We have to learn these new languages. Or it comes out this way. We might say, you know, Abraham, he was a good guy and God saw that he was an exceptionally good guy so God counted Abraham among the righteous because he's a good guy. He was a really good guy. I bet he was a good guy. Um, probably was a good guy. I mean, if we would have met him on the corner and said, you know, hey, Abraham's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Um, we say it all the time. We might say it this way, you know, we hear about somebody in the neighborhood that has passed away and we say, hey, you know, you don't need to worry about Eddie. Um, don't, don't worry about Eddie. He was a good guy. He was generous to a fault. Um, don't, don't worry about it. Eddie's okay. Don't worry about Eddie. He's generous to a fault. And we speak this way independent of any profession of Christ that Eddie may have made or, may, or didn't make. Uh, there's no Jesus. Just Eddie was a good guy. What are we doing when we say that? 
we're defaulting to works. Because um, Eddie should be in because of his, because he was a good guy. He probably was a good guy, probably very loved. This is works. And we're here saying that God should welcome Abraham and Eddie into his heaven based on the account of their works expressed in being good guys. And I mean, someone might even object and say, well, Rick, have you ever heard of the parable of the talents? Doesn't Jesus say to the faithful, well, well done, good and faithful servant? Doesn't he say that? Well, he does say that, doesn't he? But we can't interpret that phrase, you see in isolation from what the rest of the Bible teaches, which is a second interpretation rule that I've been introducing to you slowly over the last few weeks. The rule that whatever interpretation we come to at a given passage has to be able to withstand the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. The reason being is simple, because ultimately all 66 books of the Bible have one author who doesn't contradict himself. So if we come to a particular passage and our interpretation of that particular passage is in contrast or in conflict to another passage of Scripture, then our interpretation of one or both of these passages is incorrect. And if we're going to take Jesus as saying that one that when he says, well, done, good and faithful servant, and all those verses that are like that, if we're going to take Jesus saying, okay, you know, based on your performance, based on your faithfulness here, you are personally righteous, and now you can come into my kingdom. If, if, if that is correct, then everything that we're studying here from Paul is wrong. Um, we, we have to, I, I realize that this is mentally difficult. When I was writing this, I'm like, this is hard. And I had this temptation to say, well, let's make this a little bit easier. We can't. Listen, friends, we can't. That's what's going on all around us. And that's why when you bump into people who've been in the church for a long time, and you begin to question them about some of the simplest things, they look at you like they're about to get plowed over by a truck. You had that experience? They don't know nothing. And because they don't know anything, and I'm not trying to tear them down. I feel terrible. It's not their fault. It's the leadership's fault. Because they know so very little, they're prone and vulnerable to all kinds of crazy stuff, aren't they? Unable to discern some of the television preachers from real authentic gospel preachers. They can't tell the difference. We have to roll our sleeves up. Let's do this just for a few more minutes. Paul is saying no to all of this. Look at Romans 3 and verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You see that? By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we can't be justified by being a good guy. I'm not saying don't be a good guy. Don't leave here and say, wait, I need to be the good guys no more. No, that's not my point. My point is, you're not getting into heaven by being a good guy because we can't be a good enough guy. Paul shows us the way in Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You can, I think you can see this word counted is pretty important here. It's the key word. What does it mean? Well, there's four meanings here that it can possibly mean. One is to think about or to reason. It could mean to reason. Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. 
Real popular passage. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. It's the word legizomai. It's the same word that's being used. Second way is to keep a mental record. Paul uses it that way in another very uh, popular passage in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where he says, love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. And the NIV brings this out really well. It keeps no record of wrongs. So it's Legizomai keeps this mental record, you know. Another way it's used is to hold a view, a particular view. Paul uses uses it this way in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 20. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Who suspect us as walking according to the flesh. In other words, there are some who hold the view that the apostle Paul and his companions walk according to the flesh. So it's another meaning of the word Now there's a fourth meaning, and it means to charge to the account. Lonidas says it means to keep records of commercial accounts involving both debits and credits, to put into one's account, to charge to one's account. Now we have four meetings here. We have reasoning, we have keeping mental records, we have holding a particular view, and we have charging to the account. How do we make the, deci- how do we make the decision which one is used? Well, there are three ways. Context, context, and what? Context. You see, Paul wants to make this really clear. And I'm taking you through all this because I want you to understand why Romans 4, verse 4 and 5 are there. Why are they there? They're there for a purpose. What is the purpose? Let's look at them. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. Oh, this is definitely the fourth meaning, isn't it? To charge to one's account. This is radically soul-changing stuff here. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, the word counted in all three of these occurrences so far, same word, legizomai. In fact, legizomai is used five times between verse 3 and verse 8. Five times. What is Paul saying? Well, um, he's saying this. Um, Notice the contrasts. In verse 4, he's making a contrast between wages and gift, isn't he? Douglas Moo says it's between grace and obligation. If I work for you and you agree to pay me $10 an hour and I work eight hours for you, well then, you know, you you owe me for those, those eight hours, do you not? $80 $80 plus all of the other stuff that gets put on top of it. Um, that is what is due. That, that particular wage is um, charged to my account, so to speak. Um, uh, I go with Emily and help her clean some houses. And she agrees to pay me X amount of dollars. At the end of the day, she writes this little thing called a check, makes it out to my name. And I take that check to the bank. And 
there's a certain amount on that check that is to be charged. It's, it's to come out of her account and it's to be put into my account. Make sense? We do this every day without thinking of it, don't we? We do it every day without thinking about it. Notice in verse 5, Paul contrasts work with trust. Work with trust. What's he say? To the one who does not work, but trusts. There's a, there's a contrast between working and trusting. Uh, this serves to clarify what Paul is saying in verse 3. Namely, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was charged to his account as righteousness. This is the cross and the stick figure. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know my little cross and my little stick figure. The little stick figure is repenting of his sins, looking to Jesus, and his sins are counted, charged to the account of Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus' perfect merit, record, and achievement is now being charged and accounted to the sinner who's repenting of his or her sins. This is soul-changing, life-changing stuff. We could put it this way. This is, I think, a really good way to think of it, too. You're given a new status. I think this is a good way of thinking because, you know, ambition teaches us that we, we really should try to improve ourselves, get a better job. When you get a better job, what do you normally go do? Do you live in the same single-room apartment that you're struggling to live in? Where well, you have a new status now, which affords you... Um, a bigger apartment or maybe even a house. Some of you have just bought houses. Uh, what enabled you to do that? You have new jobs. In many ways, there's the new status that you're enjoying. I don't mean status in a wrong, in a bad way here. When you put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus, you are risen out of the ash heap, so to speak, out of the gutter. And you are raised to a new status by virtue of this perfect merit and achievement of Christ, which is charged to your account. Isn't that wonderful news? In closing, what do we say about Abraham out on, uh, out on Mount Moriah? What, what do we say about that? I, I think we're going to take a whole morning and talk about that. But let me prime the pump. Was Abraham righteous before he got to Mount Moriah? Or did he become righteous on Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is in Genesis 22. The Bible's not always chronistic this way, but it is in this case. Mount Moriah is in Genesis 22. Abraham believes God before Isaac's even born. And it is charged to him as righteousness before there ever was a son to sacrifice. 
And the importance of this is Abraham was already righteous when he went to Mount Moriah. Not a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness of Christ that is charged to his account. And in closing, I will say this. Look at verse, look at verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are the blessed one of which this psalm, Psalm 32 in this case, speaks. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, which is so hard to get our minds around. Father, we confess that we want to earn our salvation, that these categories are not easy for us to dissolve, that, Father, we, def- we constantly default to uh, the theology of Santa Claus has come into town. Father, uh, you are teaching us over and over again through your scriptures that we could never be good enough, that it would never work but you've shown us a better way, that you've shown us that it's through the achievements and merits of Christ Jesus that those achievements and merits could actually be ours through simple faith in Christ Jesus, trusting you and your promise just as Abraham trusted you and your promise. So Father, we pray as we go, as as we leave our time together, Father, that you would continually press these things upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.